As a culture, we don't like communal singing. Like, it's just something that is a culture. We're not good at Australians unless we're at the football and they're playing horses. Um, Caleb, you could probably break out in song now and sing it for us. But um, So the kids don't do a lot of singing downstairs, so I was really excited to be here. Um, as most of you know, I like a good sing. So um, for those who don't know me, and I think we've got people online, which is a little bit nerve-wracking, don't do this every week, so I'll get a bit nervous. Um, I'm Liz. I have an amazing husband called Rod, who's down the back. We've been married for 29 and a half years. Is that right? Yep. It's pretty cool. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> Esther's going to laugh at me the whole time. I'm up here. I might send you down the back. No. Um, we have four amazing children that we birthed. Um, <laughs> well, and I have six seven children that they're not all from my womb. Um, I'm getting really nervous here. Anyway, we have Kate, who you just saw up here, and Esther, who you saw up here, and Sarah is homesick, and Lachlan lives in Melbourne, and is, him and his fiance are struggling big time at the moment with um, COVID and what that means, and they're supposed to get married in three and a half months, and that's just all messy. So, But anyway, we love them. I sent them donuts yesterday, so that was exciting. <laughs> Good mum trick, wasn't it? <laughs> if things are going wrong, send donuts. So it's good. So, um, yeah, so today we're halfway through the series in Colossians. We're talking about helping you to work it out in faith and life. I will slow down now so you can understand me. And this week we're looking at the guidelines for healthy families. So this would have to be one of my most exciting topics. Anybody who knows me um, knows that family is really important to me. Um, we got to celebrate Kate's birthday. We're not doing birthdays at the moment. Kate is all of... Did you decide how old you were? 27. Um, this week, so it was so cool to get family together. Locke and Jemima on FaceTime, and um, yeah, we love doing family. So families is pretty exciting. So um, Paul wrote the book of Colossians. You've probably all heard this, because I haven't been in church. Forgive me if I repeat everything you've heard over the last few weeks. So Paul was an apostle and wrote the book of Colossians. He wrote a whole lot of letters. He wrote 13 of them to different churches that he loved. And he was highly respected. And he was highly respected by the followers of Jesus then, but also now. Um, most people know about Paul. But you know what was amazing? That um, unlike most of the New Testament writers, he didn't even know Jesus. He didn't actually meet him face to face. So... That's pretty cool. means that it gives us a bit of foundation. We didn't actually meet him face-to-face, -face, but neither did Paul, and he's included. Um, and the other amazing thing is that he actually hated Jesus. So Paul, when he started out his career as a Pharisee, he hated Jesus. And um, his main aim was to actually wipe out these Christians that were destroying his faith of Judaism at the time. So he had lots of people killed, lots of people imprisoned, but one day he was road tripping to a place called Damascus and his aim was to kill more of the um, Christians there. But Jesus appeared to him in a vision and Paul's life was completely transformed. He became a new crea creation driven by love and gratitude to Jesus and he wanted to show that love to others and he wanted to show them how to do it in a really practical way. And if you read his letters, there's just really practical, tangible things that we can all do on a daily basis. So he's compelled by this mission to see all mankind know the love of Christ and for their lives to be transformed. 
Paul desires that our lives on earth are a demonstration of what heaven is like here on earth. And it's a bit like, you know, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul wants us to live lives that are representations of heaven here on earth. And um, one of the things I love is that he warns us against adopting a national, a cultural or a racial religion, because it's really easy. Like, I look around the room and we're actually all pretty white. Sorry, I did see Mick there. You're not quite white, but, you know, yay. And, you know, I'm going to have brown grandbabies. I'm so excited. Locke will be loving hearing that. So um, Jemima is, is part Indian, so I'm very excited. So we're all quite white, but the church across the world is actually quite a different colour. I was having a conversation with someone the other day and we are talking about Jesus and I'm like, well, Jesus was, Jesus was actually um, Arabic. He was from an Asian culture, so he didn't actually look like us at all. <laughs> he was probably shorter, he probably had a beard and he was very Asian and, you know, he wasn't white like us. So, um, I'm very sounding racist, aren't I? Um, anyway, so <laughs> a lot of those things, it's like the church looks really different because it's spread across the globe. So he, Paul doesn't want us to have a, a religion or a, a faith that is based on our culture that we're currently in. Um, so then we just have a brief look at the book of Colossians. It's the 12th book or letter that's in the New Testament. It's written in about 60 to 62 AD, just a little bit before my time. Um, and <laughs> just before yours, just, yeah. Um, so the Colossians at this time, they were trying to mix this Greek philosophy with Christian theology, and they were really struggling how Jesus fitted into that process. And um, one of the most famous verses in Colossians, and I think Tim might have brought this to you last week, was... Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So it wasn't about clothe yourselves in a cultural form. It was about these values that we hold inside. And he's such a practical teacher, Paul, that he begins where we all begin. And in chapter 3, he begins in the home and gives some instructions on how we can do family. So we're just going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 24. This is from the Message Translation. And it says, Wives, understand and support your husbands by submitting to them in ways that honour the master. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives. Don't take advantage of them. Children, do what your parents tell you. This delights the master, Christ, no end. Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. A lot of people get stuck on this verse um, over time um, and they sort of get stuck on this, I guess, perfection model of what a family or a home or a husband and wife should look like. So we didn't want any of you to feel, I guess, crushed by this and sort of, oh, I can't do it. So we thought we'd just have a little bit of an historical look at some other families in the Bible. This is Rod, if you don't know. He's my husband. Hi, everyone. Ooh. How are you all? So um, we thought we'd look at historically at some of the families in the Bible. Yeah, how about Adam and Eve? What a great group <laughs> they were. First ones along, they disobeyed God. Now whose fault was it? Adam blamed Eve, but we know they were both there, weren't they? Uh, then things got really bad when their son Cain killed Abel. Uh, then Cain rang away and Cain ended up on the first wanted poster. Um, just after that, we turn up with Noah's family. 
And Noah saved his family by building a boat and putting all of the animals and his family in there. But just after that, he got naked and very drunk and evidently sailing around on a flooded earth in a full barge of animals was a little bit stressful. He didn't appreciate the fact that one of his boys, Ham, don't know why I'd call him Ham, but anyway, <laughs> mocked him for being naked and drunk. So Noah cursed his son and you never hear of Ham again. He's like, no Christmas dinner for Ham ever again. And then Abraham's family, God promised a child to this elderly couple, Abram and Sarah. And Abram and Sarah were not ready to wait on Sarah to get pregnant. So he had sex with his maid. Her name was Hagar. Hagar got pregnant, had a son, Ishmael, and then made fun of Sarah for not being able to get pregnant. Hagar and Ishmael were sent away because they were no longer welcome in that happy family. <laughs> Abram, Abram had a nephew named Lot. Um, and Lot, <laughs> Lot was great. He tried to give, there was some homosexual men in the city who were quite violent and he actually wanted to give his wives to them, rather, not his wives, his, his daughters. daughters to them. Um, and he also, later on, his daughters were like, we need husbands, but we're not going to find husbands because we're out in the middle of nowhere. So they actually got their father drunk and slept with their father so that they could have children. It's like... Okay. Wow, what a mess. Yep. Isaac's family, Jacob, one of Isaac's twin boys, swindled Esau, the other twin, out of his birthright by lying to dad. And the mother, Rachel, or Rebecca, sorry, got involved in this as well. Esau was understandably um, angry and he wanted to kill his brother. So Jacob had to run away and then he went to see, who was it, his crazy uncle Laban. Yep. Yeah, so Uncle Laban, he was a bit of a trickster and he uh, gave uh, his first not-so-beautiful daughter, Leah. We're not allowed to say that, but we did. Um, <laughs> his not-so-gorgeous daughter, Leah, to him. And then later on, after I think it was 14 years of working for him, he finally got the gorgeous daughter, Rachel, just to smooth things over. A bit like you, you got the gorgeous one. You I did. did. Yeah. Anyway, then... Um, Jacob's family, <laughs> Jacob had 12 boys um, and decided to buy the youngest one a special coat. So, you know, we all know if you've got kids, you just don't do the favouritism, although everybody knows who our favourite is, but, you know, we won't go there. Um, so, anyway, that didn't sit quite well. So, the brothers actually took Jacob, no, Joseph, the youngest one, there's so many names, so many threw names. him into a well, then sold him to slaves. It's like, okay, guys. And then lied to Dad that he'd been killed. So that was pretty messy. That was. King Saul. King Saul. Uh, he was Israel's first king, and he was jealous of the popularity of the shepherd boy called David. Uh, and David had a friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan, and fortunately Jonathan protected David, choosing his friend over his dad. And King David... Well, everybody, most people have heard of King David and think he's amazing. He even wrote, because he wrote the book, he wrote A Man After God's Own Heart, which he wrote himself, so it's quite a humble one. But he actually um, had multiple wives, but also decided he'd get pregnant by the guy next door's wife, 
and then organised for that guy to go to the front line of the battle so that he'd get killed, so that he wouldn't get found out. It was very messy. Solomon's family? Well, Solomon was supposed... son. Yes, Solomon was David's son. Supposedly one of the smartest, wisest men in the world. And he had, I think it was 700 wives and concubines. Yeah, not, not very smart. Difficult, I'd call that. Really? Mm. Okay. okay. Um, Jesus' family itself, uh, Mary and Joseph were married when Jesus arrived. <laughs> um, and they also, when he was 12, they actually were on a road trip with family and they left Jesus back at the temple. That was responsible parenting. Yeah, I lost Kate in a, in a shopping centre once. Mm. I found her again. But, you know, yeah, we've all done it. And then we're up to, there's a lot more families in there, but Paul, Paul, Paul. didn't even get married. No. So, um, yeah, he never got married, never had a family, original church planter, primary author of so much of the New Testament, opted out of the whole family thing. But he does have some great insights. And I think he knew that marriage was difficult. Marriage and family is difficult. Yeah. Anything you'd like to share about your dysfunctional family? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know where to start. But we want you guys to just have a couple of moments around the tables to uh, maybe share about some of the hard things or the difficult things or the ugly things or even the good things about your family. So yeah. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes yeah. just to have a little chat. What's your experience of family and what do you think that means? We might put some music on if that's okay. So now that we know that, you know, the standard's not that high from the Old Testament, we might just pray. <laughs> Father God, I just thank you that you love each one of us that you have placed us in families. Some of those families are from birth and are related by those things. Other things are those friendship families that we create and the, the people that we love dearly and we hold close and we do life with. And Lord, I just thank you that all of us are in those situations. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling in those areas today that they won't feel condemned, they won't feel um, criticised in this, that they will maybe find some skills that will just go with the journey and I pray that we all just look out for others who need to be built into those relationships. I pray that your word will go forth. I pray that your love will go forth and that people will know that you love them and that you want the very best for them. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So let's have a, another quick look at the verse from Colossians. Wives, understand and support your husbands by submitting to them in ways that honour the master. And when he says master, he's talking about Jesus and God. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives. Don't take advantage of them. Children, do what your parents tell you. This delights the master no end. Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. And, you know, to understand a little bit about this verse, we just need to understand where Paul is coming from. He's speaking into the culture of the day in Colossae. I think that's how you say it, but that's okay. So we're in a Roman city. Greek philosophy is in full force. It's very patriarchal. It's a very brutal um, society. And Paul is speaking into a culture that is ideologically opposed to the culture that Jesus is ushering in. I mean, even looking at the Old Testament that we looked at before, I mean, what Jesus is talking about is very different to what was even going on in the Old Testament. There's this, Jesus has got this focus on love and how can we love one another, how can we bring that in? Whereas the Old Testament, possibly because of where it was set, it was a brutal time. I mean, they didn't have what we have in the comfort zone. So 
It's a brutal time. So we're going to have a look at what an average Roman household looked like back in the day. Thanks, guys. Paul then gets really practical, and he shows the Colossians what this new humanity might look like in a first-century Roman household, which was a highly authoritarian institution where the male patriarch held the power of life and death over his wife and children and slaves. Not so in a Christian household. So, very patriarchal society. Some might say it's maybe not a lot different here, although if the husband does kill his wife or children, we will hope that... Um, the full force of the law comes down on that. And we still see that today. We still see pictures of what this family looks like in today's culture. We don't have to flick very far on the news to hear some really brutal stories. Um, so the wife was mainly for reproductive purposes. So she was at home with the children. Um, and the husband actually had other women mistresses that would go to social events that would be used for conversation. The wife was literally a purchase to build family relationships and connections and build power. Um, the children were also owned by the father. When a child was born, they were actually placed on the ground and the father would come along. And if the father wanted to keep that child, he would pick it up. If the father didn't want to keep that child, he would leave it on the ground and then one of the slaves would take it out and um, leave it. There was a designated place where they would leave the children that were unwanted by their fathers and most often they were picked up by slave traders and um, integrated into that world. So even children had no rights and the father at any time if they got angry they could actually discard the children and do whatever they wanted and there was no law against that. That was the law. That was their, their rights. So we're sort of entering in this society and Colossae, the people who have just discovered Jesus are trying to work out how they can do family, which doesn't look like that. We will see some more of that later. So he steps into this culture and in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, So, if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorb with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. So Paul's saying to these people that you don't have to have a family life that looks like a Roman. You can actually do something completely different. And in doing something completely different, you're going to demonstrate that, I, that Jesus is different, that Jesus is going to do something completely new, something completely different. And um, the reason he does this is because, I don't know about you, but I carry things from my childhood throughout my whole life. So there's things that happen in your family home which you then replicate throughout your life. You can probably all think of things. I, um, I love to slam a door. If I get angry, you know, I love to slam a door. Like, if I get angry, that would, like, be the best thing to do, is to actually slam a door. Um, my parents had really good arguments. Like, you know, they were pretty loud. Mum, if you're watching, I love you dearly. But they would have really, really good arguments. Uh, Rod's mum and dad, I don't know if he can ever remember a time where they actually had an argument, ever. They never, ever had an argument. So we enter into our married life and... 
I'm waiting for the argument, so I would bait him. <laughs> like, you know, can we have an argument? You know, I'd be like, I want to have an argument. But he wouldn't do the arguing, so then I would slam the doors, and then he'd get angry. You had to get him angry. He'd get angry because I slammed the door. So I learnt things from my childhood that I brought into the next stages of my life. Um, I'd, I, oh, no, I like to bite, but, you know, that's, that's you know, if I get... But that's not an anger thing. That's just, you know, something you do when you show love. You bite people. That's awkward. Um, <laughs> not, in, not in, just, you know, you bite their arm. But anyway, anyway, we'll keep going. So we all bring things from our family that we grew up in into the next stage of life and throughout our whole life. Mary, stop laughing. Yeah. So there are things that Paul is saying, if you guys can get Jesus in your families, if you can replicate Jesus in your family then we can actually take this further. We can take it to all the stages of your life. And then the next ones that come along, they will get who Jesus is and they will take him on further. We can actually change culture and community if we can get Jesus inside the family. And I just love that he starts in this space. He starts in the household. He starts with the family and goes, okay, we can't change everything all at once, but let's start with the family. And for each of us, that's something that we can do. We can all create change within our families and we can create them for good. And that might be your friendship groups. It might be with your children. It might be your um, older family. It might be with your parents. My parents started going to church when my sister was 13. She started to going to church. My family started to going to church. So there's all these things that we can do in families to create change. And Paul suggests that this resurrection life begins in the home. So we can introduce Christ to the generations by being in this place where we're almost comfortable. Um, and Paul encourages the receivers of, of this letter, which is also us, Tim talked about that last week, that this letter was written to these people, but it was written to be sent out to lots of people. Um, he encourages us to make our home and our relationships with the reflection of Christ and the love he has for you. We're just going to watch the next half of that video. Here, the risen Jesus is the true Lord. And so, in the Lord... The wife allows her husband to become responsible for her, and the husband is subject to Jesus by loving his wife and placing her well-being above his own. In a home where Jesus is Lord, children are not objects, but are called to maturity and to respect, and parents are to raise their children with patience and understanding. Christians who are slaves are to honor their human masters precisely because they're not the real master. Jesus is. And Christians who have slaves are to understand that this slave is not their property, but rather a fellow member of Jesus' body to be honored and embraced in love. Paul's walking a very fine line here. He is reshaping the most basic Roman institution around Jesus who rules by his self-giving love. And so while he doesn't abolish the household structure outright, the exalted Messiah demands that it be transformed almost beyond the point of recognition for any Roman living in Colossae. So Paul is giving these guidelines to help the new Christians to reshape their, the Roman household to reflect his way of life, Jesus' way of life. And, you know, I love the fact that he actually begins here with women. So he starts at the beginning mentioning that women love your husband because in the Roman culture, women wouldn't have been mentioned. So Paul's actually flipping things on its head by putting women even in this equation. Even in, you may have read the story of Feeding of the 5,000. So when you read that, if you read it, the 5,000 is only men. It actually says after there were 5,000 men 
not including women and children. So the other writers in some of the things didn't include women because in this time they didn't actually count them in the statistics. So Paul's flipped it on his head. He's actually mentioned the wives straight away. He also mentions the children and again, they weren't included. They weren't part of the count. So Paul is flipping things so beautifully. One of the... When Rod and I were planning our marriage, we, there was a huge amount of debate about putting the word submission or submit into our wedding vows. And people were like, oh, you can't put that in, you can't do this, you can't do that. But it would be so easy to get hung up on one little word and you miss the whole lot. Because if you... The Colossians got a really brief version. They got like these four verses. If you read Ephesians, it actually goes for about a chapter and a half. And the guys in Ephesus would have got that letter first. They would have sent it on to Colossae. So Paul is actually giving them, a, I guess, a review. It's a briefer section. So um, there's this whole passage, and so often in society, you get stuck on the word submit. And submit throughout our culture often has a negative connotation. But the word submit is this action of the heart and the mind. It's something that goes on underneath. It's a decision that is about my, my inner being rather than an act of obedience of me, Rod saying I should do something or of me saying to Rod, you need to do something. And it's an, it's an action of obedience, not an action of heart and love. And it's so easy to get caught up that thinking that submission is about control. But submission is not about control. Submission is all about love. And you can't actually do, do the love out of anything other than, yeah, that giving of yourself. So we did decide to put the word submission because it didn't worry us. We didn't have any thought that this was going to be a controlling relationship. And, you know, some people throughout history have read these verses and gone, okay, it means that we need to control women. We need to put them down. Or it, it goes the other way and you get where, um, you know, husbands never do what they like and there's all that complaining that goes on. There's a lot of power that people put in this verse. But... It's all about love, all about love. And Paul is placing just such um, value on each individual in the family unit and also within society that he wants love to flourish, he wants joy to flourish, he wants this to be a beautiful representation of the unity that we see with God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and he just provides this beautiful practical instruction to both the husband and the wife on mutual submission to one another. In Ephesians, it actually says mutual submission to one another. Godly submission is not blind obedience. It's not about control or power. It's an act of love. It's a gift given from one to another. Even in our relationship with God or my relationship with God, he never forces me to love him or to do his will. He's given me complete freedom of choice to choose to love, to choose to obey, and to choose to submit to him. Submission that is God-breathed is a gift given, not something that can be taken or demanded. Submission is a decision of the heart and the mind, and obedience is an action or the will. And I guess that's where the heart begins, because to give this gift of love and mutual respect requires trust and faith and a letting go of control. And whenever I think of the ultimate act of love, I always come back to 
the life of Jesus and how he chose to submit to the Trinity, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He chose to come to this earth as a baby, to give up his position in heaven to become a weak, powerless human. And then he chose that ultimate sacrifice of death on the cross so that you and I can live forever with with God in heaven for eternity. And you know, no one has ever loved me like Jesus did. No one ever will. And because of this love, I try to choose to love like Jesus did in all of my earthly relationships. It's really difficult. It's really costly. Um, But there is such beauty in this space. But it's not easy. You know, we all get frustrated. We all get annoyed. We all get that thing. You know, people, you often hear people, if it wasn't for people, then life would be easy. You know, shopkeepers talk about, oh, if we didn't have customers, life would be easy. If... Michael didn't have any clients coming in to do accounting, and I'm sure it'd be really easy. <laughs> you know, it's just, it is hard doing this people relationship. And, and Jesus knows that. There's a, a part in the, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane that some of you might have read. And, you know, he agonized over what he had to do on the cross. He was in complete and utter, utter position of stress. They say that he was spe- sweating drops of blood, which means that the stress levels that he were in were extremely high. So for him to do the connection and relationship with us cost him everything, not only that stress, but then the death on the cross was such a huge sacrifice. So he gets that relationships are difficult. He gets that each of us struggle with doing that. You know, Rod and I, as I said, we've been married nearly 30 years. Um, It hasn't all been unicorns and roses. I can remember when I had Kate 27 years ago, I remember after that just being so in love with this baby, like, you know, she was the perfect child. She did the four hourly sleeps and she did all of that perfect stuff. And I thought, yeah, I think I'm happy. I could actually get rid of Rod now. I don't think I need anything else. (laughs) You know, you just have those things because that was, that seemed quite easy. That that can be hard, especially after you've got a new baby and throw another baby in who doesn't want to sleep and you're going, oh, why am I doing this? But, you know, marriage is hard and then we've had different dreams over the years. Paul Rod has a desperate dream to live overseas and to do um, mission work in overseas country. I have struggled with that all of our life, all of our married life and he has sacrificed so much for me to do the things that I want to do. And we've done this mutual coming and going. hasn't always been pretty, believe me. It's not always pretty. Um, you've all had situations in, when you're in your relationships where it's just not, it's not pretty. <laughs> it's really ugly and it's really hard. And um, I think the thing, one of the things that has, has helped us to work through that is a lot of grace. Um, which graces this undeserved favour. And it's something that if he doesn't put the toilet seat down every time, then is it worth me getting completely stressed about? Well, sometimes it is. Um, But, you know, there's this grace that goes on and trying to understand what's going on in the background. Um, And so it's the same with children, that we have this same thing with our children. It's easy to get frustrated and have put your expectations on your kids. I, over the last three, four, five years, we've had other people introduced into our family unit. So we had four kids. 
and you know things were quite smooth. Everyone was living at home. It was pretty cruisy most of the time. It was we have great family relationships, and then you throw in some young men, and then you've got this whole different dynamic. And then you go, how do I fit into this? Where do I fit into this space? How do I respect their rights as adults? How do you make them be adults in their own space? Um, and then, you know, some of them come home and live with, with you for a while, which is so nice. I'm not delaying the builders at all, Matt. Um, Matt and Sarah are building a house at the moment, so they're living with us, and I love it. But I know that there would be tensions going on for all of us underneath, and there's a lot of grace that goes on in that space. And then I imagine that some of you are living in situations where family's not close, where family's distant, where family's awkward, and where family's messy. And, you know, I've seen a lot of you navigate messy families in really gracious ways, things when things are said and when things are spoken that you've chosen great ways in doing relationships rather than asserting power or control. You've actually come in underneath and gone, how can I support you? And I think so much of how we do family and relationships is that coming in underneath somebody else and going, how can I lift you up rather than how can I pull you down? It's always about that lifting up. And I think that's the beauty that Paul's trying to explain here, that just like Jesus sacrificed everything for us, he's asking us to step in in there and sacrifice for someone else. One of the other things that we have found useful is learning boundaries. And um, Dr. Henry Cloud talks about boundaries a lot. We're going to watch a video of his in a moment. And what I've found with understanding boundaries is that it helps me to know where I begin and end. And if I know where I begin and end, then I don't get too hung up about where somebody else's begins and ends. He explains it really well, so let's, let's watch Henry. It's about one day I was at the hospital, and a family came to see me, and it was a mom and a dad and two of their adult children in their 20s, a young man, young woman. I sat down, and I said to the dad, so how can I help you? He said, well, I want you to fix my son. I said, well, where is he? And the father says, he didn't want to come. I said, why not? And he says, well, he doesn't think he has any problems. I said, well, maybe he doesn't. He said, oh, yes, he does. I said, well, he's not here. What are his problems? And he says, well, first of all, we know he's got a drug problem. I said, well, that can be serious. What's he on? He says, well, he's been smoking dope since he was about 15. I said, how old is he now? He said, he's 23. I said, okay, so he's mellow. What's the next problem? He said, well, he's, he's flunked out of three colleges. Now, my first thought was, how do you do that? I mean, literally, I don't know how to do that. And I said to him, how do you do that? And he said, well, he did. I said, I know how you flunk out of college, the first one. How do you get into the second one? He says, same way I got him in the first one. He didn't have the great. I'm on the board of a lot of, you know, I got him in. And then he said, you know what, doctor? He said, I got him in the second college. I didn't want him all that partying in the dorm. So I bought him a nice condo off campus and didn't want him to have to work and interfere with studying. So I gave him plenty of money. Yeah, he flunked out again. I said, imagine that, kids. <laughs> like parties don't travel, right? He said, and then he flunked out. You know, he said, I, and, th and then you saw the father's heart. And he, he, he changed for a moment and kind of opened up. And he said, but the thing that bothers me the most, he's 23 years old. He doesn't even have a college major. He said, when I was 23, I had started three companies. I thought for a second. And I said, well, where is he today? He said, well, he didn't want to. I said, I know he didn't want to come but where might I find him? He said, oh, he's in Vail. I said, Colorado? He said, yeah, and I said, what's he doing there? He said, he's skiing. 
stopped for a second and turned to him and I said, sir, I'm sorry, <clears throat> but I'm a psychologist and I help people with problems and I don't think I can help your son. He said, why not? And I said, because frankly, I don't think he has any problems. He's got plenty of money. He's got a new home. He doesn't have any problems. I can't help him. I said, but you, on the other hand, <laughs> I can help you because you got a lot of problems. He said, what are you talking about? I said, you got a drug problem. You got a can't find my niche problem. You got a flunk out of school. He goes, that's not me. That's my, I said, <laughs> you think so? He's in Vail skiing, all right? His biggest problem is do I have time for one more run before lunch? I said, he's in Vail skiing? I said, but you, you're in a psychiatric hospital. You know what kind of people come to psychiatric hospitals? People with problems. I am going to help you to help him to have some problems. I'm gonna teach you something called boundaries. He looked at me like my German shepherd would when she didn't understand something, you know, he kind of tilted her head. And I started to explain, look, a boundaries are basically a property line, okay? It defines what the property you own, what you control, what you're responsible for, how you're free to use it. And then you have a neighbor over here and they're on their own property and there's a fence in between. And each one of you is responsible for your own property. Well, what happens if that neighbor starts to not take responsibility for their own property and they don't cut their trees and they fall into your yard over the fence. What does the Bible call that? It calls it trespassing, coming over the fence. And see, because there aren't any fences that define what's your problems and your responsibility versus what's his. He's out of control, but the consequences of those problems are falling in your yard. It's the basic law of sowing and reaping the Bible talks about. See, when you set a limit on somebody, a boundary, and say, you know what, what you're doing is really affecting me and I want you to take responsibility for that, then what you're doing is you're creating a limit. The Bible has a thousand different ways to describe this, but that limit contains that problem and it holds somebody responsible for dealing with it themselves. Now my hunch is, you and I, all of us, we can identify with somebody in that story. You know, you might be the sibling, or the adult sibling, or you might be the parent, or it might be an extended family member that's got, you know, maybe they're an alcoholic or they're irresponsible, or maybe they got a rage problem where they, they, they throw their rage at you all the time and it, it trespasses and it hurts you. And what you keep doing is doing something we call enabling because it enables for them to not have to face their problem. So what a boundary does is it says no. You know, we start out in life and we say yes to love and then you get enough love and about the second year you learn another word because you get separate, right? And you start to have your own life a little bit and the toddler goes out and turns around and says no. That's their favorite word. But they also have to learn to receive no and to hear no. Now the Bible, you know, we're taught as Christians to be loving and accepting and patient and forgiving and all that. But sometimes people live out that half of the scriptures. That's the grace side. But there's a truth side. And the Bible also says that as we're being loving, that we have to speak the truth in love. And we have to stand up and say, that's not okay. This is affecting me. Also, where you're in control of your own time, energy, resources, all of that, where you get to choose what you're going to give to somebody and what you're not, instead of being manipulated and controlled into it. A lot of these symptoms we talk about 
depression, anxiety, addictions, or relationship struggles, or even performance ability. How are you going to reach a goal in your life if you can't say no to manipulation? You know, you, you want to go take this course, or that's going to take time, and, you know, your, your, your friends or your pastor or somebody says, well, if you, you know, if you really love me, you spend that time with me, and they put that guilt trip on you, you're never going to get there. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this about our giving, because I'm not talking about living a selfish life here. I'm talking about living a life on purpose. We want to be giving, but you want to be giving to, to needs, where people take what you give them, and as the Bible says, when you've had a talent invested in you, there's a return for it. See, we give to needs, we don't give to irresponsibility. We give to needs, we don't give to funding, addictive, out of control, irresponsible, rage attack kinds of behavior. Because when you're given to that, whatever we invest in is going to grow. So I love that, um, you know, we've talked about this grace and we've talked about loving and we've talked about giving, but... As he said, unless we know who we are, then it's really hard to live in that space. And one of the things over the last 30-odd years of knowing Rod is that I actually can't change him. Like, there's nothing I can do to make him any different. I can love him and I can try and I can tell him and all those things that um, I'm really good at doing. But I, the only thing I can really work on is myself. I can work on where I begin and end. I can work on what I how I fit into that scheme, the things that I'm willing to put up with or the consequences of those actions are. So I have to know who I am and where I fit. Then I can work, you know, work with the person who has the space next to me. I can't, if I cross those lines, I'm actually trespassing into his world and demanding something that is not mine to demand. Just as God gives us that free will, of loving him, I have to give Rod the free will to love me in the space that, that I have created. And that sounds weird. He does it so much better. But it's the same with our kids. Our kids are only ours, you know, to influence for a season. But they are people within their own right and their own world. You know, the aim is that you grow adults that will leave home and, and do amazing things and create their own families. So this verse of submission, can we just pop the verse back up there again, please? You know, we've got this beautiful picture of what it should look like, understanding, supporting. We've got this go all out in love, don't take advantage, doing what people ask of you, delighting the master, parents don't come down too hard, don't crush their spirits. So I think so often we get caught up in this beautiful picture or this perfect picture of what families are like and they're they're messy and crazy like there was one time Kate was annoying me I was cooking dinner and I threw a carrot at her and um my aim was really good and I hit her in the eye like you know <laughs> she still reminds me you know there's there's so many stories of things that we get wrong things that we do wrong ways that I have things I've expected of Rod that are just unreasonable um but he's extended grace back so that there is forgiveness. Some of you may be moving into second relation, long-term relationships or in a space where a first relationship hasn't worked out. And we can learn from those relationships. We can learn from everything that happens in life. I love what the beautiful Anne says, that she's an expert in marriage counselling. Would that be right? Because you've, you've had three of 
Yeah, she's had a few of them. So she's an expert. If you need any wisdom, go to Anne. She's amazing. She's learnt so much and she's gone through every experiencing, learning more, but also becoming so much more beautifully humble in that, in that situation. None of it's easy. None of it's easy, but it is quite simple. Because if you can get up each morning and love the people that are around you, if you can get up each morning and share this love of Jesus, then it's just attractive and people want to know what it is that's going on. And then you have people like Honey who just keep producing beautiful babies. And, you know, it is, it is a very attractive way to spread the word of Jesus. People love it when they see relationships that have lasted a long time. Um, I was asked the other day by one of the girls that I go to the gym with, she's like, you had four children? I'm like, yes. She goes, how on earth did you get them in the car clean? I'm like, I don't think I thought about getting them in the car clean. I was just happy if they'd had a hug and, you know, they knew that they were loved. So it is quite a simple thing, but it's also very difficult. So I just want to encourage you to work out who you are, work out where your boundaries begin and end, and then also just work out how you can love that sacrificial, beautiful love, but in a really safe way. So thank you.